All right. Well, welcome everybody to this version of the podcast, uh, October 2019. Uh, this is Dr. Norm Tebow, and I uh, one thank you for for um, listening and uh, being a, being a supportive Three Point Center parent, and also wanted to let you know how thrilled I am uh, for the guests we have with us on the podcast today. Uh, Sharon Kaplan Roja is an internationally known educator, presenter, and author. She's devoted 50 years of her professional career to the institution of foster care and adoption. Uh, while working in public and private agencies, as well as private practice venues, she's focused on crisis pregnancy, infertility, infant adoptions, placement of children from the foster care system, including sibling groups and teenagers, and search and reunion. The additional issues of international adoptions, transracial adoptions, gay and lesbian built families, and traumatized children with attachment challenges have also become a specialty of Sharon's. In the last 25 years, she's also paved the way in the world of open adoptions, believing in preserving connections over time. Sharon has lectured extensively, both domestically and abroad. She's written books, contributed to dozens of others, produced training videos, written curriculum to teach both adoptive parents as well as professionals. She's absolutely respected for her conference opening addresses and her several days trainings uh, with people touched by adoption as well as professionals. Uh, she's the co-author, along with Lois Molina, another friend of Three Point Center, uh, of The Open Adoption Experience, A Complete Guide for Adoptive and Birth. And she just recently released her newest title, Seven Core Issues in Adoption and Permanency, with Allison davis Maxson. And we'll talk more with Sharon about that book in a little bit. She's been honored by the American Adoption Congress, the North American Council on Adoption, the Attach Organization, uh, the Annette Barron and Ruben Panner Award for Outstanding Work in Adoption, and she's received many other uh, recognitions throughout her stellar career. Sharon is also parented by birth, adoption, and foster care, and she's watched her own family grow to include a number of great-grandchildren. She's watched the powerful forces of genetics play out in her growing family and the impact of the lifelong implications of adoption on each family member. Now, I wish to say, personally, Sharon has been so kind to me. Many of you uh, Three Points parents have heard, as I started Three Points Center, we went back and, and I would ask some adoption experts, if you were going to open a center like this, what would you try to incorporate if it were just for adopted children? And I'm so thrilled to say that Sharon was so generous with her time and her ideas, and she was very, very kind to me. And uh, I'm just so honored that she's a friend of our program, and uh, to call her a colleague is, is an honor for me. So with that, welcome, welcome to our podcast, Sharon. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. We, uh, we are so grateful for you. Uh, you know, not only a three-point center, but, but in the entire field of adoption, we've all been blessed because of your good work. And, and, and it's permeated and, and, and touched so many adoptive families. So we're thrilled to have you here today. Well, it became my family of adoption foster care over the years. So 56 years, I've accumulated a lot of wonderful people in my life, and they are the gifts of the work. Wow. Well said. Very, very well said. So you, you mentioned you, you've been involved in adoption at a variety of levels for over 50 years. Sharon, how did you become involved in, in adoption? Well, when I got out of graduate school and I was looking for a job, somebody told me that the best place to work was in adoption because it was like the country club of social work and you got presents and you made people happy 
and there was no downside to it at all. Wow. <laughs> I, I can't so, say I've ever heard that, but wow. Yeah, 1963, that was the notion. And so um, that's what, I mean, I'm no dummy. It sounded awfully good to me. So that's where I went. <laughs> that's wonderful. So, so there was, there was the, the, the professional track there that you took, but then, then you've also, you, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, you've parented through adoption. There's a shift there maybe. Yeah, I did. I, um, I have one daughter through birth. And um, when I was pregnant with her, I had a massive kidney infection and I lost a kidney. And so it became risky for me uh, to carry another child. And so when she was six, my husband and I decided that we would adopt. And um, before we know it, because at that time, you know, we said, we'll, we'll take any child because I was working in the field. I was very aware of who was out there needing some stability and permanency. And we got a call within 24 hours from an, a local agency asking if we would take a sibling group of two oh, that wow. were multiracial and um, three and a half and four and a half. And I'll never forget the, the statement made was all they need is love. Oh, wow. And so um, we said, sure. And that was the beginning of our journey. And I think a really big awakening for me, both as a social worker, professional, and as a parent. Wow. Wow. What a beautiful story. So, so Sharon, as, as, as you've, as you've um, you know, experienced this from so many different lenses, what have been the greatest changes you've seen related to adoption through the years? It's vast. When I came into the field, we had separate doors into the agency so that people would not meet each other. In fact, we spent a lot of time comparing schedules at staff meetings so that foster parents, prospective adoptive parents, and birth parents would never cross paths, not even in the parking lot. Wow. So, you know, I came into the field where there was just still a lot of shame and secrecy. And, um, we really saw adoption. We weren't even talking about children from foster care. We were talking about infant adoptions. And we really felt like it was a problem-solving event. So, you know, what I've seen really through the years has been an opening up to children who are older, sibling groups, children coming from other countries, particularly after the Korean War. Yeah. Um, really we saw adoption as a problem-solving event with lots of joy. And what I've seen change is a recognition of the costs of adoption and foster care, that it's painful, but it has potential for joy if everybody has the right kinds of attitudes and education um, to, to wrap their heads around the fact that it isn't the same as other kinds of parenting. I've come to think of adoption about, as about addition, not subtraction, mm -hmm. and much more complex than we ever thought. Yeah. I've come to think that shame and guilt are the biggest uh, enemies, if you will, of the joy that can be enveloped when uh, children gain uh, permanency. And I think we have more voices in adoption today. Um, voices that are coming from adult adoptees, from birth first parents, 
from extended family, from siblings, and also more communities involved. Uh, education, neurobiology, all kinds of treatment options that have blended with our work in adoption. So it's a much more expanded field than it was when I came in. That's amazing. That really is. When you think about all the, you're right, all the transformations that have occurred, um, you know, you, you highlighted something that I think is really important and, and it really um, speaks to our parents, the ones who will be listening to this, because oftentimes we get the question from parents, they were never informed about block trust or complex trauma, developmental trauma prior to adopting. Um, very few parents would say that they were informed about these things. So, so going back to what you said, you know, the idea of the shame and, and, and these other variables that influence the joy of adopting and, and, and the joy of experiencing your child. What are your thoughts on the process of educating prospective adoptive parents on these matters, especially when the majority of adoptions are successful? And, and, and oftentimes we hear, you know, that, well, if, if we were told the truth about this or we were told what we might could expect, we might not have made this choice. Yeah, boy, I hear that a lot. Although I have to laugh, Norm, because, you know, years and years ago, Dear Abby, the original Dear Abby, wrote a, a question in her column that asked the public if, if they were parenting and they knew what it took to be parents, would they have the courage to do it in the first place? And she was stunned when about 95% of the response said no, if they really know what it was gonna be like, they don't know that they would have had the courage to ever do it. 95%? So, yes, yes. <laughs> I had no idea, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, sure. so you know, when we think about parenting in general, once we're in it, it's scary, and it's never the same with either with any child. So we think we master it, and then the next kid comes along, and they, they knock us off our keister yet again. So um, I guess the big question for me is, what does it mean to have a successful adoption? Um, you know, <laughs> yes, the majority are successful. Well, why are they successful? How did they get that way? And what does it mean? Does it mean that the child didn't reject their parents? Is that successful? Does it mean they didn't go into residential treatment? Is that the level of success we're talking about? Does it mean they never needed therapy? Does it mean they never searched? Because I think adoptions are successful depending upon what the child needs and how the parents meet those needs without rejecting the child. So I think successful adoption means that the parents accept who their child is, maybe very different than who they thought their child was going to be, yeah. that they adapt to the needs of that child and don't see meeting the needs of that child, including residential treatment, as being a failure, but an opportunity for that child to grow and be successful and for the family to heal. So... I look at that word very, very differently. And I think it takes a lot of education. Um, I helped develop a course where we train professionals. And then my colleague, uh, Allison uh, Davis-Maxson, um, wrote a matching course called Pathways to Parenthood so that the uh, therapists and the parents were using the same language and understood what would cause success for everybody involved. And by putting them on the same page 
and, and that series has been tested by the University of Texas. It's now all over Texas, diminishing um, disruptions in families. Um, that course has made a big difference because I think what often happens is that the therapists and social workers are not speaking the same language as the parents and the parents don't know how to ask for services because they don't have the right language to define what's going on for them and for their child. So an example of that would be a recent family who called me and said, I don't think the therapist we're seeing is the right therapist. And I said, and why would that be? Well, because when the therapist came out to the waiting room, she went to take our six-year-old down the hallway and leave us behind. And we said, wait a minute, we spend most of our time with our child, not you. You need to take us down the hallway too. We need to do this together. And the therapist didn't know what to do with them. And I think that that shows an educated family. They yes, knew what does, they yeah. knew. And so they had taken a course that taught them how to see what a good therapist would offer, to see what their child's needs were, and to be a part of the healing process, not be separated from that healing process. So it takes good education. It takes adoption-competent and trauma-informed therapists and social workers, social workers in agencies, public and private, and therapists in the community who pick up the families as, as needed, who speak the same language and understand what the issues are at stake. And we don't have enough of them. That's yeah. the problem. Well, I completely agree with you, Sharon. And, and, you know, a few years ago, there was a study done by the Donaldson Adoption Institute, and they found that less than 25% of clinicians would be considered adoption competent. Yes. How, from your world of influence, how, how do we change that? Well, the course that I helped to develop uh, many, 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 many years ago called Adoption Clinical Training, which is 48 hours of training in person, spread out over eight full days, one day, uh, two days a month. So it's four months mm -hmm. um, with people literally interacting with each other, learning from each other, uh, role playing, uh, watching video clips, uh, asking questions. Um, doing group processes around cases, that was very, very impactful. We've reached really close to four, almost 14,000 people just in California. Wow. And it's now all over Canada. It's all over Texas. It's spreading. I'm a firm believer, and I know that because of eco economic issues and because of distance issues, we're moving more and more training online. Yeah. But yeah, we are. The, difference, the difference between putting people together in a room, many of whom are clinicians who are also members of the Adoption and Foster Care Constellation, who are touched personally by adoption and foster care, uh, and learning with those people has really changed the, the skills of the folks involved in the class. So I think it's gonna take a lot more hands-on education, a lot more funding, which is drying up and it makes me sad, a lot more funding to get clinicians and social workers to conferences like ATTACH, like the American Adoption Congress, like the North American Conference on Adoptable Children. We need to get people there. 
because it's being in the milieu of others and sitting in the lobby and talking and learning from each other and making connections where you can pick up the phone and I can call you Norm or you can call me and you have a personal relationship. Right. That's what's going to move us forward. Not online, online separated learning in your office by your computer. I right. strongly believe that. Yeah, I, I well, and you know what's interesting, not not to go off on a whole tangent here, but you know, as we're learning about epigenetics and we're learning about oxytocin exchanges and we're learning about the need that people have to interact, um, you know, our, our kids are not getting that from technology and we're not gonna get it either from technology. Right. We need to be face to face, we need to be interacting, we need to be reading each other's body signals and cues to feel safe with one another and trust one another. So I, I completely agree with you. Well, Stephen. you have that so clear. Thank you for stating it that way. Yeah, oh, it you. is. It's that personal eye to eye, laughing together, being together that really, I know I come away from conferences just filled up. Every cell in my body is vibrating at a different level after I've been in a conference with my colleagues. I feel joy and fullness like I don't feel anywhere else. Yeah, completely, completely agree with you. Now, one of, one of the challenges that I see, um, and, and just curious about your thoughts on this, I, I, I really struggle with, well, I believe, you know, um, having taught at a university, having obviously been a, been, a, been a graduate student at university, until we get an accurate diagnosis for these kids in the, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, you know, these attachment and trauma issues are not going to be taught to graduate students who are going out there to practice. And I really right. believe that that is a huge impediment to, when I graduated, I, 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 I knew about attachment. I knew about the masters, you know, Bowlby and Ainsworth. I knew about right. those theories. Right. But when I was asked if I had any adoption training, adoption specific training, I, 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 I said, I confess, I didn't even know there was adoption training out there. Yes. Uh, you know, this was back in the 90s, but um, we, it just wasn't talked about. And I don't know, know that that's changed a whole lot since. Well, I know that with the universities that we've been able to make some direct contact with the educators and the heads of departments, um, they're trying to bring in outside speakers and so on. And there yeah. are a few places where courses on adoption and foster care are being offered, but very few. And, you know, we need a developmental trauma piece added to the DSM. There's no question about that. Um, it's an ongoing problem. I, I, I'm, I'm too old to know that I'm going to be able to impact universities before I die. But I think we all have to keep working on that. We all have to be putting good books in the hands of professors. Um, you know, I, I, um, I have a son-in-law who uh, was adopted at three and a half from a very, very, very traumatic first three years. Mm. And uh, he has a lot, a lot of issues. He's 62 years old. I adore him. He's very talented. <laughs> we finally convinced him that he needed to go see a, um, a therapist. He found himself a psychiatrist for some medication. He absolutely was feeling like this was the right fit. He saw him three times and then he went back for the fourth visit yesterday and was told that the, he, he was too, uh, he was just too, um, destroyed was the word that the psychiatrist used for treatment and that there was no hope for him. Mm 
Are you and kidding? He, and he wasn't going to see him anymore. And he wasn't going to write a prescription for him um, for his Remeron, which was actually helping for the first time, um, because he didn't feel that there was anything he could do for him. And so my oh. daughter and I have been working so hard to get this man someplace where he could feel a little bit of joy and hope. And it was dashed totally. And um, I think as long as we have folks out there that are feeling like they can treat folks with developmental trauma um, and don't understand it at all and can trigger the seven core issues again yeah. with rejection and shaming, um, we are going to be continuing to see kids growing up into adults with great pain in our society. It breaks my heart. And I yell about this wherever I go and you do and everybody else that I respect is out there doing everything they can to change it. But it's at the university level. It's at the place where people are getting their training that we have to make a difference. And so that's the ongoing job. Wow. I am so sorry to hear that happened. I mean, I'm really literally heartbroken that, that it should never happen. And it happens every day, not just yeah. to my son-in-law. Yeah. It happens every day. Families who come to me who've been in therapy four or five years, who come to me for whatever reason, and I sit with them for an hour and they sit there and they say to me, Sharon, and not just because it's me, it could be anybody informed, but they'll say to me, Sharon, we learned more from you in an hour that we've learned in four years. Why isn't this information out there in the hands of therapists? Yeah. So yep. it is heartbreaking. It absolutely, completely agree with you. Completely agree with you. We've got to do a, a better job. I've long felt that the entire field of mental health has marginalized adoptive families for years. Yes. And, uh, and they're marginalizing. Guy. Foster families are marginalized. You know, the largest number of adoptions in this country, Norm, are relative caregivers. Yeah, kinships. Yeah, yeah kinship adoptions. And they are really being ignored. Well, they're family. They know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they don't know anything about a, a, a trauma and attachment either. So, you know, in our new book, we talk about adoption has a much broader definition today. It's anybody who is not related to the children that they're parenting and anybody who didn't give birth to the children that they're parenting. So that would include all these kinship caretakers yeah. who are related to the children, but did not give birth to them and have come back into their lives at a different stage of development after trauma. Sharon, have, have your views on adoption changed through the years? If so, how? Oh, dramatically. <laughs> um, first of all, I think adoption should only occur under the most absolute necessary circumstances. Yeah. Um, I think whenever possible, children should be able to stay connected to their family trees and that we should be putting more funding and help into keeping families together rather than separating them. Because right. I think adoption has huge costs for everybody. I think clearly adoption should be about what children need and not what adults want. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I absolutely support um, keeping connections for children, uh, cutting their losses significantly yeah. by creating whatever kind of openness can uh, occur while keeping children safe. And um, I think that that's a primary issue for children. Um, they actually have 
several family trees. So this whole issue of nature and nurture needing to be Siamese twins working together um, with the parenting parents, whether they're the adoptive parents or the relative caregivers or the foster parents, um, having real important nurturing roles and maybe even legal roles in children's lives, but also recognizing there there's the genetic parents and they will always count and they have great information that can be shared over time and updated that can help a child form a solid identity and yeah. have a sense of seeing mirror images that give them a sense of liking themselves. And um, that there's always somebody, an extended family, that can provide positive role models as needed. So I think the secrecy and shame has been very, very divisive. And I do everything I can to keep children connected with those folks from whom they spring, as well as permanently connected to the people who parent them day to day. And those families have to come together to benefit children. That's a huge change for me. Well, and, 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 and at times that can, be, that can be quite a task in and of itself, you know, I, and you, you're, you're a strong advocate for open adoption, research on healthy outcomes, you know, right. six studies that I'm aware of, longitudinal, high quality studies indicate all positive, typically positive outcomes for kids when there's an open adoption in contact with the birth family. A number of our adoptive parents at Three Points have, have, have valid reservations about their child creating contact with birth families. Can you, can you share with us, Sharon, any thoughts you have on managing that anxiety, uh, where, where, where you might draw the line in healthy versus unhealthy relationships with the birth family? Absolutely. And I, and I want to broaden the definition of birth family because sometimes a birth first mother or a birth first father are not in a position to have a healthy relationship with a child if they haven't addressed their addictions, uh, their abuse or violence, their mental health issues. Yeah. But there's, there's a larger birth family out there. There are grandparents, aunts, uncles, older siblings, um, cousins that can provide information, mirror images, um, and healthy connections. So sometimes, you know, when I find families are really scared, what they're frightened of are, are two things overall, that my child will get hurt or hurt again, um, or that I will lose my child to those yeah. people, that my child will choose to be with them rather than with us. And uh, to address that second issue, it's really about understanding how attachment works and that in the same way, uh, many of us grow up in our families of origin, and we may come into adulthood trying to take some of our parents' messages out of our brain. <laughs> uh, we go to therapy for years, and we may learn to talk back to our parents, but our parents are never out of our brain. That's what attachment does. Uh, we can't just erase that time with our parents. So I think when we explain that our children are firmly attached to us, they can't just throw us away. Um, they may add people, but they can't subtract us from their brain. Whether they came to us at birth or they came to us at 10, we're now a part of their brain. 
So um, part of that is addressing that issue. The other part is, uh, is helping them to understand that our children need to come, come to terms with any abuse or violence or any fears or concerns they may have about their beginnings. They have to know that their birth first families are human beings that make mistakes and, and why what happened happened. They have to be able to reach a place where they can confront those issues and talk to those people and ask why. They have to know that there are other people out there that, uh, that reflect a positive part of themselves. Otherwise they can feel doomed to be uh, less than who they can be because of the good nurturing that they've had from their adoptive and foster families. So is this making sense? Sure, it, it makes wonderful sense. It, it, absolutely. One of, the, one of the challenges some of our parents have asked of us is, okay, so we understand the importance of the links. We understand that. How, do, how can we frame such negative behavior towards our child or unhealthy behavior towards our child in a way where our child doesn't come away feeling more shame? Well, I think we look at the general issues and then we get down to the specifics. So when I'm talking to families, I'll say to them, what do you know about addictions? Or what do you know about bipolar disorder or schizophrenia? Let's talk in general. What do you know about it? Um, how do people get that way? Um, how much of it's genetic? Is that part of what's frightening you? How would you know if that's coming up for your own child? What would you do about it? What if you didn't have anybody that could help? What if, you, your, what if your child didn't have you and they were kind of out there just doing their thing and nobody really supported them? Um, and so we start with the general kinds of questions and then we bring it down to what do we know about this birth family today? Um, have you been able to stay up to date? Do we know how they're doing today? Have they addressed these uh, concerns? Um, and then thirdly, um, you always reach out first adults to adults. Uh, this isn't about a child getting involved before the adults get involved. So frequently we need to help the parents find out what's happening in the lives of those first birth parents, make a connection to them, see how they're doing, see whether they would be able to maintain any boundaries, see if there's other family members who could participate. And then I often have real discussions about um, what would cause you to wanna close again any mm -hmm. connection? What's yeah. your biggest fear? And how do we put into place boundaries around those fears? What's beautiful in openness is that the boundaries are not walls. Walls are barriers. You're not supposed to be able to get over. Boundaries can move. They can breathe. So you can create tighter boundaries when people aren't living by the standards that are important to you and you're in control. It's your house. You're legally connected to your child. You can create that. It's better to create those boundaries and test them while your kids are younger, because as your kids get older, they're going to push the boundaries. They're going to be, by social media, able to reach out. And so you want to develop these relationships while you have some control, which is when your children are younger. And that's another reason that I put forth the boundary setting early on. I don't know if I answered your question or not. 
You, you absolutely did. And, and, and you bring up a very, very good point, which is the fact that it's not uncommon for, for, for kids to come to Three Point Center having kind of behind the scenes created contact with, with their you know, first family um, through social right. media without, without their adoptive right. parents even being aware. Right, right. So isn't it better to confront your own fears, see what's going on in their lives, see what's on social media, um, make connections, put into place some boundaries that feel comfortable for you and then begin to introduce your child into a healthier kind of a scenario and saying to your child you know this these are important issues that happen in society it isn't just your parents who are abusive it isn't just your parents who are have addictions this is a societal issue and there's reasons that people act that way and there's things that we can do to help and we want you to understand that it isn't that you come from bad people. You're coming from folks who have an illness, a mental illness, an addiction illness. And this is what we have to do to address those illnesses. And while they're still active, they're not always safe people for you to be around. So you have to be real honest about it without putting those people down. And you have to describe it in a way that helps children understand they're going to run into it. I love that Sesame Street, Sesame Street now has a character who's in the foster care system because her mother has an opioid addiction. It's opening up a whole other level of discussion. I think it's terrific. Wow. Wow. I, I wasn't aware of that, Sharon. That's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's opening up discussions for children who are in foster care, but also children who were adopted because their parents... Their birth first parents couldn't get a handle on their addictions. And so we're neglectful or abusive. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've had parents who've, who've been frustrated when we've talked about the idea of trying to frame as much as possible what the child experienced, or at least, you know, the, the birth first parents behaviors, you know, in, in a way that you said, as you said, without putting them down. Uh-huh. And that's a challenge sometimes for our parents because they carry such emotion about what happened to their child that should have right. never happened to their child. Right. Any, any thoughts, any counsel for parents on managing that line? Well, the first thing is the parents have to come to terms with their own feelings. Um, it's, it's, I always say to parents, it's not fair to lay, to lay your anger on your child. Um, yeah, it's horrible when somebody has impacted our children to the place where they have to go into some residential treatment along the way to deal with that trauma. Right. It's very, very painful. Um, but we have to be able to, I, I do a lot of work on forgiveness. Um, we have to help parents get to a place of forgiveness and understanding. Otherwise what they're transmitting is anger and fear. And that does not help our children to come to terms with their trauma. So I think this is work that parents have to do. It may be an interesting discussion to have on a parent's weekend yeah. about how do we forgive people who have hurt our children um, and have caused them to have a very, very difficult life. Um, and we have to work on that if we're going to help our children to accept themselves. They come from these people. And they were receiving messages and information even before they were born. If there was violence and screaming and yelling and, and 
lack of proper food and lack of acknowledgement because the mother was so involved in her addictions that she never even acknowledged she was carrying that baby. The loneliness, all of that has impacted our children even in that last trimester before they're born. Yes, we have a lot to be upset about, but the only way we can help our children to heal and to forgive what happened to them and move on in their trauma is if we do the work first. And that's really about understanding and then forgiving. Wow. You, I, Sharon, I just love you. You're so wise and well-spoken. <laughs> Thank you. It comes from a lot of experience with my own children. You know, it's, it's interesting, Norm, because I had this very discussion with one of my grandchildren, um, who really is now the third generation um, that's been impacted from a family line, mm -hmm. uh, from the, the daughter we raised, um, who lost her mother to addiction and all kinds of trauma. Um, and now um, that daughter who we came into her life at four and a half, the kids I mentioned before, yeah. who's been out on the street. She's bipolar and, and doesn't always take her meds and she's often missing. And then she left behind a couple of children uh, that are connected to me, but other children around the country, they're beginning to find each other now. And, and I was having this discussion with my granddaughter, who's 34, and now she has three children. So I have three great-grandchildren, and she hasn't always made the best choices. And she's able to talk to me about the trauma now that she has to help her three children deal with in therapy. And her, her question to me was, Grandma, when does this stop? When does it stop, Grandma? How do we make it stop? Um, you know, and, and I said to her, well, you know, I love you and I love them, but you know, I love your mom. And I have forgiven her and I've forgiven your great-grandmother for the things that she didn't have any control over. And you have to forgive. You have to forgive what's happened to you if you want your children to recover from their trauma. And, you know, it's a discussion that's very meaningful to me. The whole issue of forgiveness is part of our healing work. Um, and we all carry grievances and we're, we have grievances connected to our children and the hurt that they've had. And if we carry those grievances, we pass them along to our kids. And then they pass the trauma along to their kids. And so it begins with each of us. That's Absolutely. Right. Each Absolutely. Making yeah. a different choice. And I think the boundaries always have to be set around keeping our kids safe. That's the bottom line. Is anything we're going to do going to call into question our children's safety? So I always balance that against what if a judge said to you, you can adopt these children, but only if you're willing to stay in touch with the family of origin. Wow because I think it'll be better for your kids. So how do you keep your kids safe and balance that against what we now know? And some judges are saying that. I'm willing to terminate the birth family rights. I think the kids are better off with you, but I need to know that you're not gonna cut the kids off from their whole extended family. How will you balance that? Because there are so many ways to be creative today. There's so many ways to maintain privacy and boundaries and still maintain connection. How are we going to do it? 
And that's a, that's a whole other discussion. You know, you, you, you're, you've, you've hit on a number of things that are really salient to our parents. Sharon, one of, one, one of the ideas that you've touched on, you know, epigenetic piece, right? And, and, yes. and that's growing. I'm fascinated by, by epigenetics, yes. the influence of pre-birth, uh, you know, pre-birth influences. And, and pull them back a little bit. Some, some folks subscribe to the idea of a primal wound. Um, right. Nancy Verrier's book. And, right. And others say that adoption in and by itself is not traumatic, but yet others would suggest that epigenetics play a much larger role than adoption in and of itself. Have you any idea or, or, or what are your thoughts on these separate pieces and how they influence this entire process, Sharon? Well, I've thought a lot about it. I, I hold Nancy Verrier in high regard because I think she woke up the public to some very important issues. Indeed. And she, yes, she validated did. for many adopted people experiences that needed to be validated. She put into words for many where words didn't exist. Um, I also know, and I have friends that are uh, cultural anthropologists who work in other parts of the world who say to me, well, that's not true in Africa. <laughs> Um, you know, children get passed around in tribes and, and, you know, so how much of that is cultural expectation? You know, we have a really big thing here in, um, in our, uh, English culture here about, uh, bloodlines and having to have our own kids and adoption being second choice. Um, and so, um, when infertility comes into play and people have a need for kids to look like them and be like them and come home as early as possible and think that that's going to do away with any, uh, pain of that separation, you know, I think then we're kind of looking at the tribal, uh, the primal wound more from a societal expectation piece. Some of the early work of, um, uh, David Kirk for instance, would touch on this mm -hmm. um, and his early research. Um, so I think the primal, room, the primal wound exists and it exists within the context of our culture and our expectations. Because I would say that other parts of the world, particularly third world countries, it wouldn't be seen the same way. Um, but I also think that epigenetics play a huge role here because we have historical trauma that goes back generations right. for many of the families from whence our children come. If they're coming through international adoption because of war and refugee camps and stolen children and so on, or they're coming through uh, the foster care system because we have several generations caught in addiction and abuse and poverty. And poverty, I think, creates changes in epigenetics. And I think we're seeing that. So I think it's all in the pot. It all, I can't say one over the other. I think they're all relevant. I, I, I would, I agree with you. I think it's fascinating how we're fleshing things out more and more. And I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for researchers who who, who take these things like, like Dr. John Balin and, and, yes. and others who just take the information and kind of try to paint a mosaic of, okay, here's what we know now. We have so much yet to learn. Right, um, right. But look how far we've come. 
And, it has and, been a long, it's been a long journey and we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I look at uh, the, the work of uh, Dr. Catherine Aitz, um, you know, who's with the Cherokee Nation, who mm -hmm. wrote a terrific piece for our book on um, Native Americans and adoption. And, and she looks at the, the historical trauma that has impacted Native American children who've been separated from tribes all across this country to be given, in quotes, a better life. Um, or African-American children, where much the same has occurred, or children coming from third world countries um, um, because of war and tragedy and poverty. I think we, my brother actually is a cancer researcher, but he's a doctor of um, cellular biology. Wow. <laughs> uh, microbiology. And, you know, I talk to him about this a lot. We talk a lot about epigenetics and what we're learning. Um, and, we, and we're Jewish, so we've talked about the Holocaust and its impact on, I have many friends that are children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And I watch how they struggle with their health. Um, and I think our new ACEs work, which is yeah. showing how our children with high ACEs um, get ill so, so early and die 10 to 20 years younger. All that's epigenetics. I don't think we can in any way ignore that as having a great impact on our field. It's exciting to see all that being discussed and researched. And I think it needs to be informing our parents, it needs to be a part of their education before they adopt. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Completely agree with you. One of the things that that I've tried to do at uh, the parent weekends here at Three Point Center that I've spoken at is, is that epigenetic piece, just explaining, look, many of these things were in place before your child took their first breath. Right. You know, these are not bad children. These are children who have been handed a certain genetic code and a certain way of responding. They're not oppositional defiant. They're not ADHD. No. They're not any of these labels. No, no, bless you for that. What I say to families, is it's a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance. It's a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances. And you weren't prepared for that. And the fact that they need help is not a failure. It's an opportunity to change their future. Yeah. So many people look at the placement of children into residential treatment as a failure. And I go, wow, no. What an opportunity to make a change of direction, to do massive healing yeah. for your child and for you. You have as much work to do as your child does. You can't yeah. have your child come back to the same environment. It has to be a different family to come back to, much more educated, much more attuned. It's not fix the child, it's fix the family. And I know that's where your belief is. Yeah, absolutely. We are all about the entire family system and supporting our parents and making those changes and everybody's healing because typically by the time, you know, a, a family has come to us, there's been so much trauma all the way around. Yes. Uh, the parents, the siblings, uh, extended family. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't talk to them about vicarious trauma. Right. You know, we don't say when you when your children came home, even as babies, if they could have talked they would have looked at you and say, wait a minute, who are you? You don't sound like the people I've been listening to. The environment isn't the same. Your heartbeat doesn't sound the same. Who are you and how did I get here? 
Yeah. Um, you know, that's a trauma in itself. That sudden shift, that's where the primal wound comes in. That sudden shift. I do believe all adoption's traumatic. Yeah. But it's it ramps up for every other move that occurs. It ramps up when you're really different from the parents by race, by religion, by the several other influences that you've already had in your life as you've moved through a foster care system, it keeps, the trauma keeps ramping up. And so what happens is we get an opportunity when our kids' behaviors show us that they're in trouble, we get an opportunity to rise to the occasion, find the best program and intercede. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens is our kids come in and they unpack that trauma. I say to parents, do you know anything about vicarious trauma? Because what they have is the suitcase packed with all their pain and hurt. And they come into your home and they open up their suitcase. And then emotions are catchy. And pretty soon everybody, all the other kids in the family, your marriage, your parents who are the grandparents, your cousin, the cousins of the kids, pretty soon everybody has caught it like the flu. And you're, you didn't know about that. You didn't know how to stop it. So now you're as traumatized as your kids. Yeah. You, uh, you speak so well to our parents, Sharon. You really do. I know this is resonating with so many of our, of our families who are listening. I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch gears for the little bit of time we have left with you. You, uh, we've mentioned you have a new book out that we at three point center absolutely love. Thank you. Um, I just want to open this up. Please, please tell us, tell your, tell our families about your book. Well, it's, it's what we call a a public facing book. It was written for all the communities who are touched by children who come to them other than by their genetics and giving birth to them. So um, we talk about the constellation. So if your family doesn't have that word, It's anybody touched by adoption, foster care, relative caregiving. And um, everybody's wrapped into this book because our belief is we're all in the boat together. (laughs) If one rocks the boat, it affects the rest of us. Yep, we're all systemic. That's right. If one of us heals, we get a chance to heal the others, which is why openness is so important to me because ultimately the child gets to benefit when all sets of parents are healed around them. They don't have to carry that trauma forward. So half the book is a very, very practical book on what are the core issues, which start with loss. Everybody has a loss before they gain anything, which leads to feelings or fear of rejection, which leads to shame and guilt, which is a self-esteem issue, which leads to grief. So every loss has to be grieved. And if we do the work of grief, we begin to form a solid identity and we know what real is and we know who we are. And if we do that, we get to move to intimate relationships because we have to bring a whole self to be intimate with another. And that brings us to a recapturing of control in our life and the mastery of the life lessons 
that the constellation is given through the losses of adoption. So the book takes you through the cycle. It, it has pages and pages of examples for foster, adoptive, relative caregiving, birth first parents, extended birth family, extended adoptive family, and the adoptee from child to latency to teenager to adult. And at the end of every chapter is a set of tools that helps the reader to address that issue. So it's very practical. You know, it's very practice oriented. This is what you need to practice to get to your healing. The second half of the book is written through the lenses of experts, most of whom are members of the constellation. So if you are uh, an interracial family, there's a whole lens that looks at interracial adoptions, African-American adoptions, Latino adoptions, international adoptions, Asian adoptions. Uh, if you're a sibling, sibling issues, um, all of that is at the back of the book. There's 17 con contributors to the book, second half of the book, plus articles on um, forgiveness, the use of rituals for healing, and a whole chart that families can use to see what the issues are as their children grow into adulthood who've had losses. What do you do at this stage? What do you do at this stage? So it's a very hands-on friendly book, but it's long. It's a tome. There's <laughs> a, it. a lot of great information in it, Sharon. But, but it really the, you know is. how I, I think about it? It's, it's because it's heavy. It's because our, our work is heavy. Pick Indeed. it up and feel the weight. It's almost 500 pages. So in actuality, that's our work. We have to get through that work. And... Um, I'm worried about our country today because in many ways we're moving backwards around these issues yeah. and um, there's less money, there's less education, there's less funding for kids, there's more separation of families all over the world, there's more war, there's more refugees. It's really creating more and more trauma for children and families. And so I think we better educate ourselves as parents because we have a lot of work to do, not only for our own family, but for in healing the community and uh, speaking up on, the, on behalf of our kids and other people's children. So I hope that people will read the book with that in mind. I'm, I'm, whoever reads it is going to benefit immensely. I, I will tell you, um, Katie Soli, our clinical director, um, read it um, and immediately told all the clinicians, we all need to read this. We're all going to review it. We're going to study it together. We're going to continue. And, oh, and we're so wow. grateful, Sharon. Oh, really? my. So, so for our parents, what is, what is the, the best way for them to get a copy of your book? Amazon. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in bookstores. But the truth is, Amazon is the best way to get it. It's quick. And, um, and most people are using Amazon to purchase it. Um, and we're grateful. Um, and I have to say, you know, our contact information, uh, certainly Norm, you can provide it to your families. Um, and I hope to meet your family someday. But well, I, and, 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 and I was going to say, you know, as we, as we, we wrap this up, the, the bad news is we're shortly out of time. But the great yes. news is we expect Sharon to be able to come out and do our next parent weekend with us at the start of the year. We're looking at uh, sometime in early February. Uh, End fully. of February. End yeah. of February. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're setting that up with Sharon, figuring it out right now with her schedule and ours. But we have, 
we want to have Sharon here on our campus talking to you guys, our parents, because uh, you, you can tell uh, she's, she's just incredible. And uh, so, yeah. Well, and I'm always happy to talk to your families. Um, if any of them are here in Orange County, um, and I know they won't be hearing this podcast, I'm just mentioning it to you, uh, Norm, but we're doing a big thing at the Newport Beach Library tonight for free. Um, and yeah, so, you know, if you have any families that are in Orange County, they can come up and introduce themselves tonight and say they're with Three Point Center and I'll give them a special hug. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. We'll put an email out for that this afternoon. Absolutely. We will, Sharon. Great. Great. That just speaks to how kind you are to us. And we just love you. Um, so a, a, as we wrap up, Sharon, you know, as you think about, as you think about adoption, you think about the changes, if, if, if you could, if there was anything you would want our parents to know who've been through so much, you know, I mean, obviously residential treatment is typically a last resort for these kids and, and, and the families don't want to have to get to that, but they do. If there was anything you'd want these parents to know, um, what would you share with them? Well, they're not failures. Um, they're giving a gift to their children of healing. Um, they, they should take advantage of all the services offered to them so they have a stronger family for the child to return to. Um, and that, um, I was thinking about something that was very personal to me in that, but I think that the opportunity that they've been given is an opportunity to grow and learn beyond what they would have had in any other form of parenting. It's a gift. Every child that we took into our home through adoption and foster care, many who came in off the streets as teenagers to join our family, taught me something. It wasn't an easy lesson. It wasn't an easy lesson. But when I look back, I know that what has made me who I am as I'm pushing 80 is all of their lessons and the expansion of my soul and my mind and my heart. So use this as an incredible gift that your kids are giving you. It's the best thing I could share with you. That is so wonderful. Sharon, you're a blessing to all of us who work in this, in this field. You know, we, we consider it an honor to work with these wonderful families and uh, colleagues like you just add to it. So thank you. Thank you thank for all you. you've done. Thank um, you for trusting me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Just love you. So, so moms and dads, again, the name of the book is Seven Core Issues in Adoption and Permanency, and Permanency uh, by Sharon Kaplan-Rosia and Allison Davis-Maxson. Uh, you will not regret that book. Uh, please, please purchase it. And uh, Sharon, we, obviously, we wish you the very, very best. Thank, Thank you for you. your time today. I uh, just adore you. And we'll look forward to having you come out here on the ranch and meeting a lot of these parents. Thank you, and the feelings are mutual. <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. Take bye -bye. good care. Thank bye -bye. you, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sharon, are you still there?